Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657 4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving higher. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. I have got a uh, pretty cool guest on this week. I don't I don't have a... Uh, one thing cool about this podcast, you get to meet some cool people along the way, and I've got an awesome opportunity here to meet Sean Glass. He's with uh, Echelon Front and a former Navy SEAL, and he's got a couple other things he's going, got going on, but he's here for the Moving Iron Summit. He's going to be our keynote speaker, and I wanted to have a chance to sit and talk with him. Sean, I appreciate you being on the show, man. Oh, thanks for having me out, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to come and, and talk to the crowd today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to what you have to say. So, um, so for those of you that aren't familiar with what Echelon Front is, um, Sean, why don't you kind of explain that a little bit? And yeah. That is. So our mission at Echelon, Echelon Front is to basically teach people some leadership principles, teach them how to be effective leaders. Because whether you are actually in a leadership position, whether you're on the front lines trying to get stuff done, everybody can improve themselves if they start to view themselves as a leader. So we can all get better at it. So our job is to go around and, and work with great people like you, great people like we're gonna see today, and basically offer them some additional tools for the toolbox from a leadership perspective. Right on. And this this is uh, one of the cool things about this. I found um, Echelon Front through Jocko Willink's podcast and um, got connected with, with, with Sean and, and uh, through that. So I'm looking forward to what has to do there. But before we get started going through all that, let's talk a little bit where you're from. So you grew yeah. up on a family ranch in Texas. I did, yeah, yeah. A small ranch out in Texas. And uh, unlike most Texans, my parents decided to raise horses, which was kind of the bane of my existence growing up. I didn't really look at them as much fun. For me, it was just uh, <laughs> it was just right. work. Yeah. So we had, uh, and, and, and on top of horses, I think we chose probably the most finicky breed. We had Arabians. Okay. So um, you know, it was an awesome experience as a kid to grow up on a farm, to have all this different space that we could roam around on. Um, you know, we had, it wasn't a huge farm. It was about 60 acres, which... Yeah. Hey, when you're a kid, 60 acres seems like the Amazon yeah. jungle. You know, yep. it, it's plenty to, to go exploring on. So uh, grew up in a small town. Um, after high school, went over to Texas A&M University. I knew from about probably 13 or 14 years old that I wanted to be in the Navy, specifically in the SEAL team. So mm -hmm. I went to A&M, graduated A&M. Uh, went right to officer candidate school and then went out to San Diego to train and that's where I spent the majority of my 
adult life was out there. But, you know, growing up on a farm definitely gives you some perspective on things, and I wouldn't change a thing about it. We actually, when we chose to get out of the military, we actually moved my family to Virginia okay. uh, to give our kids, and I have five kids, to give our kids basically the same type of life that, uh, that I had growing up, where they can have some freedom, some space, yeah. some nature, some work, some yep. character building type sure. stuff. So sure. I yeah. was smart, unlike yeah. my parents, I chose cattle. So we have <laughs> right. a, a small yeah. herd of cattle that, that we yeah. run and it gives us plenty of uh, time to focus our energies on for sure. Right on. Yeah, yeah I've, uh, I've, uh, I've never successfully ridden a horse. Yeah, I've been on a horse like four or five times, and I've fallen off of a horse four or five times. Yeah. So you know they keep getting back on it, right? Yeah. They just keep getting back on it. I have not ridden um, since we went up to uh, Bull Hill, which is in Washington, yeah. to do a course when I was in the military. And our sniper course is up there. I didn't do the sniper course. Officers don't get to do cool things like that. So, <laughs> but we went up there to do some training. We had like an offsite up there. And we built out a relationship with a dude ranch that's up there. So we yeah. have to go ride horses. And it's awesome. Put us on horseback. We're going through these, you know, I think it's the Cascade Mountains up there. And they take you to this guy's house who I think was a ex-army pilot who built, no joke, like a saloon out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So you're riding these horses through the mountains. You end up on a saloon. You tie your horse up, you know, on the hitching post out front. Right. You go grab a drink. Yeah. And you go back out. And it had been probably 20 years since I got on a horse, mm -hmm. but you know, I was like, Hey, I still got it. And man, I could not match the gait of this horse. I was getting bounced all over the round. And the horse's name was Elvis. And it was like three hours of misery getting there yeah. and three hours of misery getting back. And I was just in my head thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure I used to be pretty decent at this. And then we get off afterwards and I'm talking with one of the, the horse handlers and he's like, you know, how's your ride? I was like, ah, honestly, man, it was a little bumpy. And he's like, yeah, man, Elvis is horrible. He has a terrible gait. I'm like, bro, why would you, <laughs> why would you take him out of the stall <laughs> right, then? Right. Give me, but it made yeah. me feel a little bit better. Like yeah. I hadn't completely lost the touch of it, mm -hmm. but uh, definitely no expert for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 The ho horses and I just, we did, I've tried and failed every time. So yeah. sometimes there's things you just not good at. And I, 100%. I, I recognize that one. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So let's talk a little bit about some of these, some of the stuff that you're, that you're going to talk about today. And I think one of the cool things about going down this leadership path as you take a, and, and reading through Extreme Ownership and those kind of books is that what I'm finding is that when you become, and not that you can ever master it, and I think that it's one of those things you constantly have to keep working at because it's a skill you can lose. But to me, watching how I've transitioned through my leadership journey, um, when you, when you truly start to understand these stuff, it's almost like it's a superpower of sorts mm. because you can really learn how to build those relationships, the rapport with your staff, leading up and down the chain of command, those kind of things. When you were in the Navy and kind of getting started as a, as a new leader, what were some of the biggest things that you came across that you had to kind of retrospect back and look at yourself and say, hey, man, I need to tighten this up a little bit? Yeah, the, I mean, the biggest piece, and I think the, the foundation for not just leadership, but just life in general is the ownership piece mm -hmm. and truly understanding that the things that you're experiencing specifically from a leadership position, and those could be good things, they yeah. could be negative things. The, the common factor to all of those things is you. Yep. And if there's mistakes that are going on, you know, analyzing what is your role in those mistakes? How can you fix those things instead of you know, trying to point the finger or cast the blame on anyone else to really look yourself in the mirror keep the ego in check and take a hard look and just say, hey, what are some behaviors that I can change that are really gonna help me out? The most difficult one for me, and luckily I overcame this uh, pretty early in my career, and again, it wasn't because I fixed it myself. I had good mentors that kind of, you know, metaphorically slapped me around a little bit <laughs> right. and let right. me know what was going on, yeah. was the decentralized command piece. Yeah. So I went from my first tour in the, in the military you're a, as an officer called a squad commander squad commander in the book like if you're looking like the the, the rules mm -hmm. you're in charge of about eight people inside of a platoon so a platoon has about 16 people you have a platoon commander and a platoon chief that's the people that are running that platoon then you have two squad commanders the reality is the platoon commander and the platoon chief run that platoon as a squad commander you are supporting the platoon by at times 
um, leading those eight people mm -hmm. through different phases of operations, but you're not in charge. Like the platoon commander's in charge. And I had a really good platoon commander and a really good platoon chief, and they gave me and my other squad commander a lot of freedom, specifically on deployment, to, to run things. So you would think I would have learned the lesson right away of, hey, that's how to best execute things, is to give people the space to kind of run their element. But I went right from that squad commander role. My next tour, I was a platoon commander, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. Usually, you have another couple tours in between there where you're getting some more experience, um, leadership experience, more technical experience. But I was fortunate enough to go right from squad commander to platoon commander. And we started our training cycle up and I was trying to control everything. I was trying to control everything because I was looking at the mistakes that were made in training. I was thinking this is a negative reflection on the platoon. And really what I was thinking was it's a negative reflection on me if there's mistakes being made. So I was trying to control too much. And surprise, surprise, during our, our first training block, which was land warfare, which for, for us, that's kind of our one of our most important, if not most important training blocks is land warfare. We were struggling yeah. and I just could not figure it out. So I'm like, you know, I think I'm making good calls. You know, I think I'm kind of doing some things right. And I just couldn't figure it out. And luckily for me, my platoon chief from my first tour was running that land warfare block. So we had a really good relationship with each other. And after about two weeks of running around in the desert, very frustrated because we were just not getting better. He kind of pulled me aside one night and was like, hey, what's what's going on? And I was pretty frustrated and, you know, didn't have a lot of perspective because I was, you know, only three years in the community at that point. And I said, I, I don't know. I just don't get it. You know, I, I feel like I'm making some decent calls. You know, I'm trying to prevent all these mistakes. And he just kind of stopped me and he's like, well, that's exactly why you guys are failing. And it threw me back a little bit. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, you're, you're trying to prevent mistakes from happening. You're trying to control everything. And I was, you know, I have a good relationship with them. So I was very honest with them. And I said, well, yeah, because if there's a mistake, then that looks bad on the platoon and that looks bad on, on me and I want us to succeed. And he was like, hey man, why do you think we dedicate 18 months to training before we allow you guys to deploy for six months? And again, not having a whole lot of experience in this realm, I was kind of like to get us prepared. And he goes, so you can make mistakes. And so you guys can make all the mistakes that you need to make right here in a controlled training environment because that's how your people learn. Yeah. That's how your subordinate leaders in that platoon are going to learn to execute. And if you train them to look to you every time you need a call, then that's exactly what they're going to do. Anytime there's a problem, they're going to look to you to solve that problem. That's a recipe for disaster. So luckily, I was exposed to that uh, you know, pretty honestly by my platoon chief early in my career. And right after that, I made the correction. I, I let go of control. I started using commander's intent. I started actually using decentralized command and surprise, surprise. Yeah. It did not take long before we were firing on all cylinders. And yeah. by the time that we finished that training cycle, I mean, we were primed and ready to roll. And the key determining factor there was me. I yeah. had to let go of control. And then the crazy thing is, when I finally started to use decentralized command, which for people who might not be familiar, decentralized command is the idea of empowering everybody on your team to make decisions, yep. empowering them to go out there, solve problems, get things done, be aggressive. Uh, and when I finally started to do that, the crazy thing was not only did we become more effective, my own life became a hell of a lot easier yeah. Yeah. because I wasn't worried about making all the calls. I wasn't worried about the stress that came with making sure that everything is in its proper place. You know, I started to trust my people and, you know, I was leading smart, talented people and it made a huge difference and my life got a whole lot easier. So from there, man, I was all bought in on that decentralized command piece. If anything, there's probably times in my career where maybe I made the mistake of being a little too yeah. decentralized, but never again was I, you know, micromanagerial. Yep. Now that's the one thing I'm glad you brought that up is that um, everyone's familiar with their micromanagers and what that looks like. <clears throat> one of the mistakes I made too early on in, in figuring out the whole decentralized command thing was, well, I'm gonna let you do your thing and you go do it. Yeah. And my lack of communication and keeping up on what's going on, a lot of things got missed along the way yep. because of my lack of intent of uh, explaining what the intent of the thing looked like. And when you know they came to the finish line, I'm like, all right, what do you got? And, and they're like, 
85% of it's there, the other 15%, which was really the important. the really important stuff, yeah. I didn't follow up on and keep up with that. And that decentralized command thing is, it's like you said, you can go too far both ways, but I don't know which one's more, uh, which which one's worse, because sometimes if you don't stay on top of it and come to the finish line, you don't know where everybody's at. It's one thing, but if you micromanage the hell out of everybody, you don't you're going to lose that that rapport and trust with yeah, your people too at the same time. Absolutely. It's definitely a balance and it's it's not like there's a simple solution. It's like 86% of the time you should yeah. be too much and right. then the other 14 you should yeah. be, you have to know your people. You yep. have to know what's going on, but the key thing that that you said there was, hey, you know, here's what needs to get done and then kind of not checking out but just hey, letting them letting them run with it, right? right? Um, my last tour in the Navy, I ran our wartime training for the West Coast team. So it was my job to prepare all the platoons on the West Coast for what they were gonna see when they got overseas. And it was also my job to mentor the leaders that were coming through in how to be effective uh, leaders in a SEAL platoon, basically tactical leaders. And it was my first time where all of a sudden I wasn't living and breathing day to day right next to every single person that was on my team. Right. So before that, you know, I was, uh, operations officer at a SEAL team and I was seeing everybody almost every day. And before that I was a troop commander in charge of 105 SEALs and we were with each other every day for two years. Platoon commander with my guys every day for two years. But at the training command, I have cells that are running, training cells that are running different pieces of the training pipeline. Land warfare, assaults, diving, uh, air operations, driving, all those things. And they're all going to different places across the country to train their people. So very rarely did I ever actually get the chance to sit down with everybody in the same room. And it was a big challenge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at first I was a little bit too decentralized because look, when you've got talented people and you point them in the right direction and they're going to go, yeah. they're just going to go until they basically run out of information or run out of space. And even then they're just going to try to compensate and they're going to yep. try to get stuff done. And if I'm not there checking in on them, seeing how they're doing, seeing how I continue to support them, asking the right questions, what's gonna happen is I am gonna not set them up for success. Yeah. There's gonna be some things at the end that we weren't in alignment on. That's not their fault, they're trying to get stuff done. That's my fault for not having those contact points. And you know, the reason that I said asking the right questions is, you know the deal, Casey, if you're a hard charger and my idea of checking in on you is, yo man, how are things going? Yeah. What are you going to say? Good. Good. Hell yeah. Awesome. And then I'm exactly. turning around. Yeah. Check the box. I yeah. checked in. He said he yeah. was good. Yeah. Not the right question. Yeah. You know, so forming better questions, you know, what are you struggling with? How can I support? What are some resources that I can offer you right now, mm -hmm. um, you know, f to help you accomplish your mission? Those are the questions that I need to be answering. So give them the intent, point them in the right direction, and then make sure that you're checking in on them. Not from an, not from a perspective of trying to micromanage them, but from a perspective of continually trying to empower them mm -hmm. to get the job done. And that could be with resources, that could be with information, that could be with a whole lot of different things. So yep. you've got to strike that good balance with the decentralized command piece. Yep. So on that, on that perspective too, that's always one thing that I've, I've struggled with too, is, is looking at like what, in your mind, how often should you have a a, a quote-unquote check-in or a meeting or something like that because it seems like to me I'll do you know hey right, we're gonna have a meeting every Monday or hey you know let's just check in real quick at you know for 15 minutes in the morning or something like that but I guess as you're looking at that is do, do you kind of take that by each person as you look at those people that you're reporting to and say hey we're gonna have one big group huddle here at whatever or we're gonna do you know, hey, I'm just gonna. I know yep. I just need to check with you every two weeks, but I need to check with you every day. Yeah, it's kind of a combination of both yeah. of those things. So <clears throat> there is a lot of value to be, to get everybody in the same room. Sure. As long as there's a focused agenda and it doesn't become a time waster. And the reason that there's a lot of value in that is, you might have information that helps me out mm -hmm. that I'm not going to know unless we're all in the same room. So there is value to that. From a leadership perspective, the bigger value comes from those one-on-one -on -one check-ins. Because there's also just gonna be natural personalities where you might have people on your team that don't necessarily get along that well. They have to figure out how to work together, mm -hmm. but they might not actually like each other's personalities. Right. So if I'm in that meeting with 17 other people, and I know, uh, you know Casey and I might not see eye to eye on stuff, I'm probably not gonna be as honest with some things as I would be if you and I were having that one-on-one -on -one sit down and I was able to have some, some 
um, you know, frank discussions with sure. you. So, and I think it also is variable. There's, there was people on my team throughout my career, no matter what my role was, but especially at the training command, that I knew I had to check in with very little, very little. And then there was people on my team that I knew that I had to check in with almost on a weekly basis. And that might not have even been because they weren't capable. It might have been they just got promoted right. into that role. And they were learning things as they go. So those frequent touch points allowed me also opportunities to mentor, to make sure they had the right resources. And then I had people that were working for me that had been in the Navy, in the SEAL teams for 30 years. I don't need to talk to those people very right. much. They need my intent. They need to know which direction to go. And they're going to go out there and run good training. But the key to that is I have to know my people well enough to understand when I need to have those touch points. And that goes back to the relationship piece. Right. I have to understand you know, what my people's strengths are, what my people's weaknesses are, you know, who might need a little more information, who's comfortable with very little information, and that the key determiner of that is me. I have to know my people well enough to understand where to spend my time. And something that I think a lot of leaders struggle with, and I struggle with it as well, when I first took over the training command specifically was that computer is a black hole and it will suck you in. Yeah. There's not five minutes that went by that I didn't have another email popping up in my inbox all caps, red exclamation points, like it needed my direct attention right now. Mm -hmm. And most of those come from the higher chain of command. So there's a, de a desire innately to want to get them that information like right now. But if I allowed myself, I'll be stuck behind that computer all day long. Yeah. And I might feel like I got a lot of things done because I answered a lot of emails that, you know, quote unquote, required my attention right then and right there. But what I wasn't really doing was leading my training command. I wasn't really pushing training further. I wasn't providing better training to uh, the guys on the ground that were going through that training. So I had to strike a balance of, hey, I've got to break away from the computer and I've got to roam the halls and I've got to talk to my people. I've got to get out to the training sites to see how things were going on. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk. I mean, you've probably heard a ton of leaders. You know, I've got open door policy. Yeah. You know, hey, guys, open yeah. door policy. Come yeah. see me whenever you want. Yep. How often are people, it's not a revolving door. They're not just coming in right. and coming out. Like no one wants to go see the boss. Right. No one yeah. wants to come in and be like, hey, guess what, boss? I'm really struggling <laughs> right. with yeah. this thing. And you know, would you help yeah. me out with this? Like yeah. not going to happen. Right. So what I would tell people is have that empty desk policy. Have a policy where I'm not asking them to come to me. I'm going to go to them. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have conversations. I'm going to check up. When I'm doing that, I'm building that relationship with them. I'm building that trust with them. And I'm empowering them further through information, resources, whatever the case may be, to execute on whatever their their piece of the equation is. Yep. Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've even used the open door policy thing. Like, if you have a problem, just come see me. Yeah, you know? oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then like, why come you don't come see me? You're having a problem. Well, I mean, you, you know, it's, yeah. it's pretty logical actually think yeah. about it for a minute. It gets back to the, no, I'm good. Yeah. I was right. not good, no, I'm yeah. good, yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. Exactly. Um, one thing you hear a lot about now, people talk about it all the time, and Millennials this and yeah. boomers that and this that and other thing and you can look at any course of history as far back as written history goes and whatever generation is writing the history the, the generation after them is the softest bunch of people of that's ever been yeah. there right yeah and you're seeing that now we see the same thing now everyone wants to jump on the the millennial train and and bash bash oh, yeah. them all up but you know I I look at that and I think there's some really good young talent out there. And you look at that, obviously, I mean, if not, the world would, would fall down yeah. around us and it would be a horrible place to live. But as you take a look at what's going through there, when you're looking at generational leadership, and I'm just like you talked about earlier, you know, you're, you're working with guys in the SEAL teams that you've been in there for 30 years and you're, you're just starting out, you know, kind of what it looks like. As you look at those generational situations, as you're talking with your, with your people, what, what are you telling them to how do you how are you having that conversation to to teach folks to overcome that yeah. that mentality? I think the first thing is it's important is to point out what you just pointed out because a lot of people don't have that perspective, which is every single generation throughout the history of mankind has thought that the generation after them was all screwed up. Mm -hmm. There's a saying in the uh, in my former community, you know, when you go through selection, the selection course is called BUDS, and you have your class, so you have your BUDS class. And the joke is, my BUDS class was the last hard BUDS class. So every <laughs> right. single right. person that ever went through right. it, theirs was the last hard BUDS class. Mm -hmm. And there's not most, not most people, but some people in the community, you know, would be like, oh, you know, these young guys, they're soft, they're this, they're that. I'm like, that's not what I saw. 
And I ran training. I put every single platoon through their training cycle. I saw all those platoons come through training. And what I saw were very capable, very talented young people coming into those ranks. Now, all the talent and all the capability in the world is probably only going to go so far if they're not receiving the mentorship mm -hmm. that they need from the, the older, more experienced generation. So just removing the veneer of like, there really is an issue with that next generation. There's not. Is there differences? Of course there's differences. Of course there's differences. But all of those differences are uh, easily overcome if you actually spend time to get to know them, build a relationship with them, and you'll see that there's a lot of strengths yeah. that you can use. Look, are you gonna have to, at times, give people the why a little bit more. Explain to maybe, you know, the millennials, of which I think I'm 40 years old. I think technically I'm like the very tail end of being a millennial. So I would be included in this as well. Are there times where they might ask why a little bit more than your generation? And not yours, but the older generation, right? And sure, they might. And what I would offer is, what's so bad about that? Right. What is so bad about giving someone the reason that they need to do things? And if you asked someone from the older generation, they're like, why never, no one ever told me the why. Well, did you enjoy that experience? That's right, yeah. Did it's you the worst like thing ever, experience? yeah. No, it's horrible. Because yeah. then you screw something up and then you get slapped upside the back of the head. Yeah. And like, well, you know, you should have known better. And you're like, how, how should I have yeah. known better? You know, exactly. you should have yeah. told me better. Yep. Um, I, we had an opportunity when I was a platoon commander, we were going through what's called the platoon commander's course. So before you could be a platoon commander, you had to go through this course that basically was a very focused leadership course to, to give you the tools that you needed leadership-wise to take over a SEAL platoon. And we brought in a Pearl Harbor survivor, 98 years old. You know, his body was starting to fail, but he was sharp as a tack. And he gave us his story, and it was absolutely incredible. And we had some time for Q&A on the back end, and I asked him a question. I said, hey, very justifiably, your generation has been labeled the greatest generation. Did your parents, before the war kicked off, or even maybe even after the war, did they view you guys as the greatest generation? And he just started laughing. He's like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> they said all the things yeah. that their generation said before them. And this guy was so well read, he quoted it all the way back to, you know, Plato and uh, Aristotle. And they were, if you read their writings, they're saying the exact same thing mm -hmm. that we say about the generation that's in front of us. Their music sucks, they yeah. dress weird, they're yeah. not respectful. So it's, uh, it's not something new, it's not something that's gonna change. I think the two biggest things, one is, is just giving people the perspective of, that's the way it's always been. There's a little bit of grain of truth into it, there is generational differences, but at the end of the day, what you're dealing with is motivated, capable people that want an opportunity to perform. They mm -hmm. want to be, a part of a team and it's up to you to figure out how you can transfer all the knowledge that's up here how do you transfer it down to them and the key is through relationship yeah if i have a good relationship with someone then i have influence with that person yeah and they're going to be open to the things that i have to say and i need to be open to the things that they have to say as well and if i don't have a good relationship with someone then i don't have influence with people i mean it's I challenge anybody to name someone in their life that has a tremendous amount of influence over them that they don't have a relationship with. Right. It's almost uh, non-existent. So how do I build a relationship with that millennial? Yeah. There's always common ground. Sure. There's always common ground. And once you have that relationship formed and start to view them as an asset and not a liability, you'll see that, man, they're talented and they'll get a lot of stuff done. They are way more technologically savvy sure. than any other generation before them. And every single sector of the economy is being touched by technology. Yep. And if you want to stay relevant in whatever field you're in, you have to be up to date on the techno piece. And it's not gonna be me. Like, yeah. I'm not the guy that's gonna come in and be able to tell you how to match this with this to get some advantage in the marketplace technologically I'm not that person. It's going to be the younger generation who grew up in that environment and understands that environment. Yeah, that's the uh, you, you brought a good point up there, and I catch myself doing this all the time. I'm the well, if, if I can do it, anybody can do it because yep. I'm not the smartest person in the room, right? Yeah. And so, but I, I catch with my kids a lot too. Like, we'll be my son mows grass, right? He's got 15 lawns he mows and awesome. does this thing, and the lawnmower breaks. Well, I'm like, would you look at the lawnmower, see what's wrong with it? And he's like, well, I mean, I don't even know where to start. You know, I'm like. 
what do you mean? You don't know how to start. I mean, you start going through the whole thing, and I'm like, that's right. You weren't genetically disposed yeah, to how to fix a lawnmower, right? Yeah, yeah. one so, more yeah. mechanic. Right. Yeah. yeah, so we kind of go back through and start working through those things, and I catch myself doing that all the time where it's that thinking back to when you started out and you're trying to figure out what to do, and your boss, you know, says like, "Here's your, you know, your first sales job. Here's your, here's your notebook and your pen, and yeah. here's your keys. And then if you just go that way, there's some customers you can go see. And you're just like, okay. So you come back and you get, hey, what'd you do today? Well, I got, I talked to these people. And you're like, well, don't talk to that guy. That guy's not gonna do anything. Yeah. And don't. You just kind of wasted the whole day here. I'm like, well, yeah. you told me to go that way and talk to those customers. Like information that would have been helpful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So eight those, hours. Ago. <clears throat> yeah, no kidding. So that to me is is. A great a great way to look at that is just sit down and and uh, people ask me questions why it used to annoy me because mm-hmm. I'm like what do you mean just because you know yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can't but back to the point of if you can't clearly define what you're trying to get someone to do what their what your intent is and your answer is because either you don't know what you're talking about and your ego's overcoming what you're doing yeah. or it doesn't need need to happen. Yeah, and I think that's the hardest thing that I that I had to overcome was, all right, let's sit down, let's talk about this, let's walk through the steps. Here's what you need to go do. Here's why you need to do these things. What questions do you have for me? And then go back and start building on those questions and and really kind of doing that, because again, it's not the micromanagement side of it that I that I was that I was kind of struggling with. It was the just just I don't just go just go yeah okay? and just go you'll figure it out you go figure yeah, it out yeah. yeah. And but it was some you know as as kind of back to your point about the generational differences and some of the things that we are dealing with a generation that has been kind of programmed all the way through their whole life. I mean everything they've done has been programmed. It's their entertainment's programmed. Everything they do is programmed. So you have to kind of step through it with them yep. and say, here's what we're doing. And I think my interactions with some of the quote worst, you know, these kids are lazy. They don't want to do anything. Was complete false after you sit down and talk with them and said, hey, look. Here's what we're trying to. Do. Oh, okay, this makes sense now. I get what you want them to do. I'm going to go out and attack those things. Doing those kind of things made a huge difference in just how, just of the relationship part of it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Because you know? you're investing in them, and yep. they see that you're investing in them, and that goes a long way. Because you might be the first person in their adult working career that's ever actually spent time investing yep. in making sure that they understand how to do things. And look, if your people do not understand what to do, and you're in the leadership position, that's 100% on you. That is not on them. Right. If they don't have the information, the tools, the training, the equipment, whatever is needed to get the job done, they're gonna try to get it done regardless of whether they have those things. Yep. And you should not be surprised when things go a little bit awry if you have not given them clearly and concisely what right looks like. Because right. if your people don't understand what you want them to do, they are never gonna be able to execute on it. And we all have short-term memory from a leadership perspective from how things were for us, right? right? Well, you know, well, that's how things were for me and I did just fine. Maybe. Right. Most of the time, that's not true. Most of the yeah. time, someone came along and, you know, mentored you, put them, put you under their wing, helped you kind of get to where you needed to go. Mm-hmm. And then we have this short-term memory like, no, that didn't happen. I figured everything out on myself. And one of my tours, I was running one of the phases of training, the uh, initial selection pipeline, the basic underwater demolition school was the seven months of initial selection. And it's broken up into three phases. And I was running the third phase, the last phase. And there was a master chief, which is the, you know, the highest ranking enlisted person you can be in the Navy is a master chief. And he was running the first phase. And first phase is where it's the grind. Mm-hmm. It's where most people quit. It's where the, the vast majority of the attrition happens in first phase. And the instructors, some of the instructors, not all of them, some of the younger instructors that were executing this training and trying to select people were complaining about, you know, the standards are getting lowered. And, you know, this guy doesn't deserve another chance. You know, it wasn't like this when I was going through. You know, you know we didn't get second chances. So the master chief, who was just a leadership genius, basically, waited for these guys to go out on an evolution with the students. I think it was a run. They went out to do like, you know, a four or five mile run, which would take, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. And he went and there's an evolution that happens in that selection pipeline called Hell Week. Mm -hmm. And Hell Week is kind of the big crucible. It's six days, uh, nonstop physical activity for six days. You get a grand total of no more than three and a half hours of sleep for the total six days. So it's not like 
three and a half hours each night. It's no six days. You get a grand total of three and a half hours of sleep. So it's brutal. And we keep a log. It's called the Hell Week log. The instructors keep a log of everybody's performance during that six days. Um, well, this master chief went and found the Hell Week logs for those instructors that were complaining about the standards getting dropped and how, you know, it was harder for them and, you know, they didn't have second chances. And he just went through and highlighted in those Hell Week logs for those individuals all the time they had failed during Hell Week. And he didn't say anything. He just took that log with the highlighted examples of where, you know, Sean failed miserably and was given a second chance. Mm -hmm. And he just set it on their desks for them when they came back in. So they come back in from this evolution, they sit down at their desk and there's their hell week log looking at them in the face so they can't deny it. And it says, Sean sucked at this evolution. But guess what? Sean got another chance. Two nights later, Sean failed this swim. But guess what? Sean didn't get booted. He got another chance. So we have short-term memory and it's yeah. easy for us to get sucked into this mindset of, well, nobody helped me. Very few people, if anybody, is self-made. There's always someone there along the way to help them out. And even if you were that self-made person, what a miserable experience that probably yeah. was to not have someone there to, to help you yep. along. So yep. if you're that older generation that has all this wisdom and all this technical expertise, it's up to you to figure out how you translate that into that new generation that's coming yep. up. And it's all through the relationship. Yep. That's the, uh, your the revisionist history thing, you know. I, yeah, I'm guilty of that as anybody else is. Oh heck yeah! I'm the I'm the uh, I'm the world's greatest athlete. Yeah, the, fi the five great times that I had, great, <laughs> the five the five points I keep repeating every time. <clears throat> but yeah, they had a. I, I think it's just uh, the communication part of that and rebuilding and building rapport of just, of just leadership is just such a, um, such a a, a must. When you're yeah. looking at that because that's where it all starts you know and, and just watching those things come together and those things pull together and all that stuff happen it's just um that's how you get that open door policy yeah. when when you know like i'm putting trust in you so put a little trust back in me and then next thing you know we've got a relationship that you can walk in and say i'm, I'm really i'm really sucking ass right now i yeah. need some help and yeah. going through that figuring that out that's such a that's how you're going to get that open door policy that people want you to, that they they want to perceive 100 percent. so yeah you know there the uh my first platoon chief i was telling you about that was like one that kind of like slapped me upside the head a little bit and was like mm -hmm. hey man you need to let go of the reins he's still that person for me we're both he's retired we're both out of the teams and if i'm going through an issue um there's very few people in my life that i value their opinion more than that person and i'll reach out to him hey here's what i got going on you know, what are your thoughts? And sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's just, hey, I need to just vent to someone for a little right. bit. Yeah. I don't need help. I just need you to be on receive mode for me. Uh, you know, here's some frustrations. And that's solely based on the relationship. The fact that I trust that guy's advice. Uh, I trust that he always has my best intentions at heart. And to this day, I, you know, he's the person that I go to still. Yeah. But solely based on the relationship. Yeah, it's amazing. So, well. Sean, you've got a little bit of a of a, uh, a beef operation yeah, that you do, yeah. and you sell some grass-fed beef, so talk about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, so when I moved out to uh, Virginia, we moved into this community. It's called Front Royal. It's right in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley. It's actually kind of like the gateway to the Shenandoah Valley. So Skyline Drive, which is like a 190-mile, I think, national park that takes you up the Blue Ridge Mountains, it starts in that town and i've got you know the blue ridge on both sides the shenandoah river runs right through the middle of the town wow. i mean it's just like a little little slice of heaven yeah smaller town lots of good families there just hard working families and you know we moved there and my wife's family has been living there for about you know the last seven or eight years so we instantly had you know family to fall in on sure all the things that we didn't have in San Diego, mm -hmm. we had now there. We had land, we had space, we had cousins, we had uncles, mm -hmm. we had aunts, we had grandparents, we had all those things there. So uh, now that we knew some some farmers and some ranchers, we started to, to buy beef from them versus buying from the store. Sure. And uh, my buddy Paul, who's been living there, who has a, you know, a cattle operation, I bought a cow from him and took the first bite of the, the first steak that we cooked, and I just looked at my wife and I said, this is the best steak I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah. Like hands down, the best steak I've ever had in my entire life. And then 
as you can imagine, um, loving beef and also having five children, mm -hmm. we tore through that cow pretty quick and right. I, we ordered another one and mm -hmm. it was the exact same quality. And I think we've gone through like three or four whole cows now and every single one has been the exact same quality. So uh, I reached out to my, my, my ex-teammate, my buddy, my boss right now, Jocko, and I just said, hey, what do you think about you know, starting up a, uh, a beef operation? And he was you know, all in, being the carnivore that he is. Right. So yeah. uh, I reached out to, to Paul and my brother, who also lives in Front Royal, and you know, we just kind of joined forces and we created this company that's called uh, Primal Beef. And you know, it's all grass-fed, finished on a unique blend of locally grown grains. And what I mean by that is, hey, all of our cows come from the same farm in the Shenandoah Valley. So you're talking about some of the luscious, if not the luscious pastures in the United States of America. And, you know, I'm gonna nerd out on cattle talk here for a little bit, but like if you go to Montana and you wanna run a cattle operation, you've gotta have so much land because the amount of grazable forage they can pull off that land you know, I think that the ratio is somewhere between you need like 10 to 12 acres yep. per cow. Yep. In the Shenandoah Valley, it's so green. The grass grows so voraciously that it's almost like a one-to-one -one ratio, like one acre per cow and you're gonna have enough forage. And it's just full of all these nutrients. So they're the grass-fed portion, they're raised on grass, same farm, and then the last about 150 to 200 days, the they're getting finished on grain that is grown on the farm. So on this guy's farm, he's growing all this grain, uh, you know, corn silage, distiller's grain. Sure. And then he is mixing that all up with, and I really think this is kind of the secret to the flavor and the marbling and the quality of this beef, is he f mixes that up with um, produce, so lots of fruits and vegetables that he upcycles is a trendy word, I guess, upcycles right. from local markets. So okay. local markets, you know, when new stuff comes in, they have to get rid of the old stuff. Not that it's bad, but they have to move it off the shelf. So he's worked a deal where they bring all that you know produce to him and then he just mashes it all up into a big mix. And that's what they're finished on for the last uh, you know, 150 to 200 days. And that's the real secret is when you combine all the nutrition, the stress-free environment they've been getting, just grazing those pastures, and then continue to be stress-free, getting that you know fruit in there, getting the, the the silage in there, getting the distiller's grains in there, all that marbling and the texture that it adds to it. And then we partnered with a couple of young, hard-charging guys out of Lynchburg at a processing plant called Seven Hills uh, Abattoir, and you know they they bought and renovated this place that was a turn of the century processing plant, probably fed our troops during World War One, fed mm -hmm. our troops during World War Two, and then, you know, I think in the 70s when the market crashed, it kind of just fell to pieces and it shut down. So they uh, bought it, went through with their, literally with a wire brush. They were themselves in there like, you know, scraping all the rust off of everything, got it started again. And they know that they're never gonna compete with some of these bigger processing plants that are going through a thousand, two thousand, four thousand sure. cattle per day. So where they make their money is basically on the quality of everything that they do yep. and the treatment of the animal throughout you know the life cycle up to that final moment. And it matters. Anyone that's ever hunted and has you know got a bad shot on a deer or an elk, and that deer, that elk, you know, has ran seven hundred meters mm -hmm. and all this adrenaline is coursing through its veins and it's super stressed out, that translates directly into what the flavor and the tenderness yep. of that animal is gonna taste like. So everything that they do is built towards easing the stress burden on the animal up until that last second. Mm -hmm. And then they dry age the whole carcass, which is not normal. Most big plants, what they do is they break it down into small parts and then they dry age. And the reason for that, as you can imagine, is just space. Yep. It takes a whole lot of space to dry age a whole carcass that might weigh 800 pounds. So everything they do is to create the best end product that you can possibly imagine. Everything's hand cut. Um, the packaging it comes in, you know, it's flash frozen. So the difference between me putting a fresh steak into just my freezer at zero degrees and me putting it into a blast freezer at negative 40 degrees is huge when it translates to the finished product. When it's flash frozen, 
all that stuff is locked in there. And when you thaw it out, it makes a huge difference in the tenderness that you experience versus if it freezes over a course of three, four, five, six, seven hours. Mm -hmm. So everything they do is to deliver the best quality product that they can uh, to the end user. So everything that we did, we did with two main focuses. One was to make sure that the animals treated humanely because look, you, being in the military, seen enough suffering to last multiple lifetimes, not interested in people and animals suffering anymore. So everything we did was to ease the stress burden on the animal and then with the end customer in mind. We really wanted the experience of someone when they order from Primal Beef to reflect everything, all the hard work, all the effort that went into uh, that cattle. So everything we did was with the animal in mind and then the end user in mind. And kind of our model is, hey, you hop on primalbeef.com. We have a variety of boxes that we have set up. And the way that we set those boxes up was again to make sure that every single piece of the animal was getting used. So, you know, all of our boxes were set up so that one cow breaks down into X amount of different boxes. And there's a variety, you know, there's your ribeye box, your strip box, your barbecue box, your grillers yep. box, all those things. And the reason we did that was just to make sure that none of the animal goes to waste. So you get on there, you order a box, you can do a one-off order, you can subscribe every four, six, or eight weeks. We'll do the, you know, subscription model where that box will show up at your desired frequency. You get a 10% discount if you subscribe. Uh, and then one of the things that we're really proud of is we wanted to figure out how we could also make a difference in our military members' lives through this endeavor. And you know, there's companies that will do a percentage of sales and things like that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we wanted to have a more direct impact into their lives. So uh, a teammate of mine, in I think it was 2015, a guy named Charlie Keating was killed overseas in Iraq during the push against the Islamic State when they came in and took over Syria and Iraq. And his father, also Charlie Keating, started a foundation called the C4 Foundation in his honor. So when we started the company, I reached out to, to Charlie and I said, hey, I would like to do something to, you know, to give back to our nation's special operations forces and you know, we'd like you guys to be involved as well. So what we have set up through them is every single time a box is sold, we take a cut of beef and we set it aside and that beef goes directly into the hands of uh, active duty seals and their families. Okay. And, and that cut of beef is not coming out. If you order a box, Casey, that's not, we're not hiding the cost right. to you in that box. That cut of beef is coming <clears throat> from my pocket and my partner's pockets. So not only are you getting just outstanding, world-class, farm-raised, from a single farm um, beef, you're also making a contribution directly, you are feeding seals and their families so awesome. probably the thing that we're most proud about so we just officially we worked on it for about a year and a half to make sure everything was set up to where the customer has the best possible experience and we just launched uh beginning of august so we're about one month into it it's going great you can jump on primal beef check it out and you know we'd love uh, the chance to earn people's business it's awesome, man. Yeah, I've checked that out. I'm going to check that out myself. I, I do the same thing. I go down yeah, to the local yeah. farmer and grab get a cow, and, and I got a cow and a whole pig in my in my uh, freezer awesome. downstairs. So we're, awesome. we're going to, but yeah. I'll check out the one. Yeah, check that do. out. Yeah, we've got, uh, I went from one refrigerator hmm. with a freezer on top in San Diego, and now I have one refrigerator, and we have three freezers. Yes. And they're always yeah. loaded. That's always how we, loaded. I've got two. I got two of them. So yeah, they're, they're always full of stuff. Um, so primalbeef.com. Primalbeef.com. Yeah, right on. Where can people find you? Are you active on social media not, and all that? I am the worst social media person of all time. You and me both. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's kind of by design. Mm -hmm. I, I like my anonymity. I like my ability to just focus my time on my on my family yep. and on work. So the only social media that I have is going to be uh, at Primal Beef Co. Okay. Me and my partners run that. So you'll see my face on there every so often. But mostly we just use it. Uh, you know, to let people know the latest and greatest of what's going on with Primal Beef. Right, and that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that? Facebook, there's a page up. Uh, yeah. Twitter, we're, we're working on right now, but mainly Instagram is our main thing that we're using right now. Okay, all right. All right, man. Um, today's September 11th, and we're recording this here. So, Sean, I, I got to shake your hand tell you about how much I appreciate what you've done for this country and the sacrifice you've done with your family and everything else. And then and, and just thinking about all the people and, and the events of this day is... Uh, 
a little a little bit somber right now, but I, uh, I I can't express my appreciation for what you've done um, in in the uh, over this. 13 years that you're in the SEAL teams and what you're doing now. So thank you very much for what you've done. I appreciate it, Casey. It was uh, an absolute honor to be involved in a community like that. Best time of my life to get to serve with that caliber of individuals and to get to go out there and try to accomplish our our nation's bidding. And, you know, there's Jocko's a big fan of saying good. You know, there's mm -hmm. always something good that can come out of any situation, even something as horrible as September 11th. And when I was kind of reflecting on it this morning, you know, for what seems like now a too brief of a moment when that happened all disagreements in our country went away and yep. everybody was kind of on the same page yep. at least at least for a little bit so maybe we can on on today the memorial of it maybe we can kind of keep that in the back of our minds and look at you know there's uh might be some differences out there but there's a whole lot more things in common that we got going along across this great nation of ours yeah, absolutely absolutely well sean thanks for being on the podcast man any final thoughts you want to throw out there before we shut things down no just uh hey i really appreciate the opportunity i guess my final thought would just be hey irregardless of what your position is you know whether you're just starting in the workforce whether you are running a company the thing that is going to determine how successful you are is do you have the ability to look yourself in the mirror to take ownership of the things that you're experiencing and if you can do that, things are going to improve. And if you can't do that, you're probably going to find yourself embroiled in the same mistakes over and over and over again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Sean, thanks a lot, man. And I uh, look forward to your speech here a little bit, in a little bit. Right on. Right thanks, on. Casey. Thanks, man. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast. Go to the YouTube channel, see the video version of this. Uh, we're at the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel, and uh, you can see everything Moving Iron related at movingironllc.com. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Glass. Let's go to some iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here.